0: Welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. I'm Erin Helliard, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera. In our last series of podcasts, we've been exploring scene types and conventions from the rich history of Baroque opera. If you haven't heard those, or would like to brush up on your Baroque opera history before continuing, check out Baroque Banter at the Pinchgut at Home page on the Pinchgut Opera website. Today, we discuss something that is strictly non-musical, that arguably generated all the creativity and splendor that contributed to the history of Baroque opera, and indeed continues today. And that is the economics of putting on opera. This is of special interest to me as someone who runs a modern opera company. I've often asked myself, how did they fund opera in the past? Well, today we dig down and examine how opera was first run in the place of its birth, Venice in the 17th century, the age of Monteverdi, Cavalli, and Chesti. Who got paid the most, and who got paid the least? Who were the movers, and who were the shakers? Let's explore the highly paid superstars of their day, and the impresarios who risked everything for a shot at fame. We look at how opera was funded, how it was run, and we compare it to modern practices today, and in particular, how we do things here at Pinchgut Opera. That was the overture to an opera called Lerni Linda by Leonardo Vinci from 1726, played by the Orchestra of the Antipodes and conducted by myself at the Harpsichord. Vinci was one of the superstar opera composers of his day. By the 1720s, public opera, where anyone could buy a ticket, had been around for a hundred years and composers could carve out a niche for themselves as almost exclusively opera composers. They set plays, or libretti, to music for professional singers. They rehearsed the operas and adjusted the score as necessary, and were then required to direct a certain number of performances from the harpsichord. And like many other composers, such as Vivaldi, Cavalli, Hassa, and Handel, Vinci was more than just an opera composer. Occasionally, he also worked as an impresario, In modern terms, an impresario was something like a manager or producer. The word itself derives from impresa or enterprise, and it basically means entrepreneur. In the early 17th century, when opera began, an impresario was already the name given to a person who undertook to provide a service, and thus kept part or all of the proceeds. This person was generally granted the right to do this by way of a concession from a magnate or an institution. His function as producer of an opera season originated in Venice, where the first public opera houses belonged to noble families who didn't want to run the seasons themselves, partly for reasons of dignity, but mostly because direct management by nobles was actually reckoned to be quite risky, as nobles were expected to be lavish in their spending. That composers and also librettists of opera were also impresarios is not surprising. The creative team involved with this new product wanted to make sure that they were on as firm a financial footing as possible. So, who were the production team in early opera? Well, first we had the theatre owner, and this was the only person guaranteed to make a profit, as they were always paid even if the show was a failure. And then there were investors and guarantors of the opera, basically anyone who provided capital for a production. An investor might form part of a company that produced operas, participating to a greater or lesser degree in the management, or he might be an outsider. Some investors and guarantors, particularly those in a company, participated both in any profits and, more often, in the losses from the production. Within any production company, one person, the cashier, managed the cash, both receipts and payments, And then there was the impresario, the person in charge of the production. They selected the creative team and the performers and made all the business and artistic decisions, sometimes with the assistance, or more often the interference, of one or more of the people we've just talked about. The impresario often simultaneously played some of the roles I've just described as well, especially theatre renter, investor or cashier. The last person who was essential to opera production in the 17th century was the protector, a powerful nobleman. Sometimes he owned the theatre, but often he had no legal or financial obligations to the theatre or company. He lent his name and his prestige to the enterprise. He might write letters on behalf of the impresario, affix his name to legal documents or otherwise just act in situations where a commoner might be less effective. The usual arrangement was for the impresario to contract for one or more seasons, undertaking to provide a specific number of operas. Opera production did not coalesce as a fully formed enterprise in the 1630s. The precedent for their operation was spoken comedy. So the production of opera, at first, mirrored that of comedy in its broadest outlines. Performers were hired, boxes and seats were rented, nightly tickets were collected, and the theatre was physically maintained and kept safe from fire. But the demands of the new genre on the management were exponentially greater than for comedy, both in the material sense of costumes and scenery, as well as the personnel sense, with librettist, composer, musicians, dancers and extras. Comedy was produced by self-contained troops or companies of actors, but opera was usually formed by a company of people of which the impresario was the most important and the rest were just hired as needed. And so it makes sense that for most of the 17th and 18th centuries, the impresario was most often the librettist or the composer and thus at the very heart of the creative endeavor. All in all, a Venetian opera company in the 17th century was quite small. There was the librettist, the composer, sometimes an additional impresario, if either of these creatives were unable or unwilling to take on that role, the theatre renter and production manager, the cashier, and a few investors and guarantors. All the others, the singers, set builders, dancers, dressers, costume designers, musicians and backstage crew, They were hired as needed. Like those first Venetian opera companies, Pinchgut Opera is also very small with only six full-time people. Most modern opera companies of our size have between 17 to 25 people on the payroll, and large national companies have even more. That was a symphonia by Salomone Rossi, a contemporary of the great Cavalli, and one of the first impresarios. He was played by the Orchestra of the Antipodes. Just like scenery or costumes, symphonias like these were often reused in early opera to accompany scene changes or enable characters to change costumes. Recycling was just one way to keep costs down because opera from its earliest days was an expensive endeavour. One of the first tasks of an impresario was to find capital for the production. Before ticket sales could begin to flow, opera required capital to pay for things like theatre maintenance, scenery and costume design and builds, and travel expenses for the singers. Most companies aimed for self-sufficiency. The Faustini brothers, for example, who collaborated with Cavalli, Ziani and Chesti, bore the entire costs of the production, without any other sponsors or benefactors, and they were generally lucky to break even, or occasionally make a small, but still worthwhile profit. Scholars have shown that as the costs of opera increased in the second half of the 17th century, this break even model was no longer viable, and the management team had to take out loans from private citizens. Often the production was unable to pay these loans back in a timely period, leading to many lawsuits. Before tickets went on sale, some capital was also raised by advances from printers for copies of the libretti, and they were paid back when ticket revenue flowed in. Another way to generate ready cash was to find someone to rent out in advance the bench seats on the ground floor in the parterre of the theatre, or the skanyi as it was called. They rented these seats out to those who didn't have boxes. A certain portion of this advance fee could go to the impresario and the rest to the rental agent. In at least one account, this rental agent also was paid to sleep in the theatre in order to guard it against fire and theft. The most significant source of income for an opera production back then, and of course now as well, was consistent income from ticket sales. In order of importance, this was made up first from the seasonal box rentals, then from the sale of boletini, or entrance tickets, which were required of everyone who entered the theater, then the rental of the bench seats in the scagni, and finally, the rental of the highest and least desirable row of boxes, which were kept vacant from renters for exactly this reason. Everyone who entered the theater needed the bolatini to gain access. If you wanted to then buy another ticket for a seat in a scagni, or maybe rent a free box, that was another expense. Even rich box owners or renters needed the bolotini. And when we examine 17th century account books, Bolatini receipts tell us exactly how many people were in the audience each night. Tallies of bolotini survive for seven operas in the 1650s at three theatres. No opera ever played to full houses each night and the richer people in boxes often equal to the number of walk-ins, as it were, to the benches in the skanyi or those empty high boxes. That was Max Riebel singing the role of Cirilla from Cavalli's Apollo and Daphne with the Orchestra of the Antipodes. Callisto by Cavalli, which is today one of his better-known works, was not a screaming hit when it opened in 1651. Designed for a small theatre that had a capacity of only around 400 people, it only sold 232 bolletini at the opening night. Some nights only sold 50 tickets, and the last night only sold 118. It ran for 11 performances. Perhaps the absence of the sickly lead alto castrato Bonifacio Charetti, kept audiences away. Sadly, Cerretti would die only a few days after the final performance. Word of his absence and the possible use of a less-skilled replacement would have spread quickly amongst the opera-going public of Venice, whether it was officially announced or not. Alternatively, audiences might have found the subject matter of Callisto troubling. It's an opera steeped in issues of female desire, and this might have been especially problematic over the Advent season when most of the performances took place. But other shows were hits. Cesti's Argia, for example, ran at the Teatro San Luca in 1668 for 36 performances. In comparison, our longest performance run at Pinchgut Opera is six performances. The opening night of Argia had 962 bolletini sold for a near-capacity audience as the theatre held about a thousand people. In comparison, City Recital Hall in Sydney, where Pinchgut is based, has a capacity of 1,238 seats. The success of Venetian opera in the 17th century was hard to predict. Even popular composers like Cavalli could not absolutely guarantee an audience. In 1656, the composer's statira was going badly. A correspondent wrote, Cavalli's opera in Venice is going so badly that I don't doubt that it will finish up badly. They say it's melancholic. The first evening, they took in 832 bolletini. the second only 362. They've suspended the performances to revive it with some arias. But for me, I doubt they can do much because once it's discredited, the merchandise would struggle to regain approval. Signor Giovanni, one of the investors, still tormented by gout, is enraged about it, and he's right. Because if he had been about, he would have sensed the opera's problems during the rehearsals. On the other hand, the second opera that season, with the same company of singers, a work by the composer Ziani called Annibale in Capua, was a great success. Sales were as high as 900 bolletini per night, and tickets were in such demand that people arrived well before curtain time, presumably to be sure they could get in. was Alexandra Omens in the role of Daphne from Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne, an excerpt from Act 1 with the Orchestra of the Antipodes. Many box holders attended numerous times. It's likely that the occupants of a box varied somewhat from night to night, with family members, friends, or guests attending with or in place of the renter. Several letters by opera enthusiasts do indicate that many people viewed the opera a number of times, and this must have been key to the success of a season. The English merchant Robert Bargrave, in voicing his enthusiasm for Venetian opera, claimed to have seen the same work 16 times, and the agent of the Duke of Brunswick remarked that he and the librettist Dolphin go almost every evening to the opera at San Luane e Polo. The competition amongst the theatres even encouraged people to theatre hop. In 1667, Camillo Cesaresco described how one night he went to see one act of one opera at one theatre and then moved over to the Teatro San Luca to catch the last act of another. Other income was taken in from the selling of refreshments. In Venice around the time of Cavalli, there was a scalater who sold a kind of donut and a caneva who sold wine. All this nightly income was kept in a strong box commandeered by the cashier and his armed guards. The order of payment was first to the orchestra and backstage crew, then the singers and other artisans, and then the theater rental itself. Some loans and advances were also slowly repaid from these nightly earnings as well. All of this strikes us as very modern. The same practice basically goes on in modern opera production, but there is one very large difference between a Pinchgut production, for example, and one from Cavalli's time. Cavalli's theatres had opera boxes. All of the regular operating theatres had boxes, and the annual rental fees provided significant income for either the impresario or the theatre owner. The number of levels and the number of boxes within each level varied from theatre to theatre, And over the years, various impresarios or theatre owners would either decrease or increase the number of boxes with the aim of increasing either the income or the size and comfort of the boxes. Boxes were the major source of income for opera companies, and they operated pretty much like a subscription ticket does for modern companies today. They assured a relatively steady stream of income and enabled impresarios to plan for the future. Indeed, The term box office used regularly today comes from this time when opera boxes were the most significant portion of revenue for theatres. That was Salomone Rossi's Echo Sinfonia*, played by violinist Matt Greco and Raphael Fontviera, and the Orchestra of the Antipodes. The box system was the backbone of the opera industry in the 17th and 18th centuries. It was lucrative real estate. The rental and purchase of boxes enabled companies to grow and provided capital for the construction of new theatres. The box system came about because the nobility demanded an arrangement in which they were separated from the general public. Private boxes offered those who could obtain them not only a guaranteed seat, but one that was physically separate from and above the general crowd. The entertainment on stage was only one of several reasons for attending the opera. Part of the theatrical experience centred on seeing and being seen by other members of the audience activities facilitated by the shape and structure of opera theatres and boxes. Indeed, as scholars Beth and Jonathan Glickson note, one might view each box as a sort of miniature stage on a small scale, as the shape of each box, when viewed from outside, mirrored that of the proscenium itself. Despite their visibility, however, guests could still be entertained and conversations conducted within the box with a degree of privacy. Boxes often had screens or curtains so that the occupants could shut themselves off from the rest of the theatre. Box owners demonstrating their wealth would decorate their boxes both inside the box but also on the exterior, and they varied in size and luxury. In 1652, the French ambassador complained loudly to the Doge when his box underwent changes after the rebuilding of the Teatro San Luca following a fire. The previous year, he complained, Four people could sit in the front and another four in the back, that is eight in all. Now it has been reduced by half, whereby only four people can fit in it. Those two figures of four and eight people probably represent the extremes of box sizes. Most Venetian theatres had three to five levels of boxes, with about 16 to 36 boxes in each row. The small Teatro San Apollon in the 1650s, for example, had 48 boxes on three levels, but when the San Giovanni Grillo opened for the 1677 season, it set a new standard for capacity, with nearly 200 boxes arranged over four levels. These numbers remained pretty much the same in the 18th century. Tiny by Venetian standards, Covent Garden in London, for example, where Handel produced many of his operas from 1734, had only three levels of 21 boxes each. Paris and London theatres were much smaller and more cramped than those in Italy. Visitors were constantly impressed by the luxury and magnificence of Venetian theatres. Because box ownership and rental were so lucrative, the discretionary power of the impresario or theatre owner to reconstruct and change the size of the boxes could provoke anger and frustration from box holders. An agent wrote to the Duke of Brunswick in 1674, who owned not one, but two boxes. It seems certain that your Serene Highness's box will be demolished, as well as the neighbouring one, because in order to perform the operas, it is necessary to enlarge the stage. I have informed Signor Pietro Dolfino that your Serene Highness should either be reimbursed for the fifty ducats you have paid, or you should be given another similar box on the first level. The Duke's complaints were specific. His box near the stage was no longer the closest to the performers, but was now the second in the row, while another, valued for its size and therefore its ability to accommodate a greater number of guests, had been made smaller. He threatened legal action if his rights and his boxes were not preserved in their original state. The nobility even purchased boxes off the plan before the theater was constructed, just like real estate today and the discrepancies and lawsuits that arose because a box differed greatly from the plans were commonplace. Most boxes were rented for the entire seasonal year, with the annual rent usually due by the end of Carnival. Indeed, the right to keep a box from season to season hinged hypothetically on the timely payment of fees. A number of renters, however, no matter how wealthy, often failed to pay on time. So each theatre employed an agent called the fattor, who assumed the responsibility of collecting the box fees and otherwise controlled the entry to the boxes. This was a dangerous job. Once the fattor allowed the Duke of Mantua entry to an unoccupied box in 1662, but suddenly the actual owner of the box turned up and violence ensued. The fattor was stabbed several times by the angry box owner.
1: The ti a senti in loro See, God, i tu non to i I've been to the to the past, i
0: was Jackie Dark singing the role of Filena from Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne with the Orchestra of the Antipodes. How much did the average ticket cost? Well, let's say you're a visitor to Venice in the 1650s, and you didn't have a box, but you wanted to rent a seat in the Scangni. You needed to buy a bollettini and then rent a bench. Opera scholar Lorenzo Bianconi has determined that this amount was just slightly more than the average daily wage of a skilled workman. In today's money, that's roughly about 168 Australian dollars. The average ticket price for opera in Australia in 2018, according to Live Performance Australia, was $124. How fascinating to see how close these amounts are, even after 400 years. Why such passion to own these boxes? Well, Opera houses were the places to be seen, the social nexus of the city. After Dory, we will have the performance of Signor Nicola's opera, reads a letter to the Duke of Brunswick. Your Serene Highness can picture the usual courtesies, the little gatherings of women here and there, the noise of the keys for the boxes, kowtowing, rivalries, people coming together, others drawing apart, and activities of every sort, tender gestures, confusions, pleasurable incidents. The Opera House also featured the latest technological marvels, as one of the first real celebrities of the Venetian opera world was not a composer or a librettist, but a set and machine designer, and that was Giacomo Torelli. The Venetians were masters of set design, and every opera featured numerous set changes with a system of paired flats as well as backdrops that conveyed deep perspective. was the symphonia for the end of Act One of Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne. The score has this notation. Here is heavenly music with a slow beat. As the scene changes, we see the descent of Apollo. People came from all over Europe to see marvellous effects such as these. An English traveller wrote in 1664, the sets were stately and seemed natural. In the prologue, some of the actors hung in the air and then flew across the stage, One even flew downwards. He represented a fury with two boys holding him by his legs, and then he moved up again. The removing of the sets was very neat and artificial. Clouds seemed to move, and the walls of a castle were even blown up. There were exactly represented gardens and houses too. The mechanics of these incredible visual effects is another subject for another podcast. The ingenuity and technological achievements of these designers was just so immense. So let's just concentrate on the economics of set builds. We do have elaborate lists of items that were required for these 17th century sets. By 1650, most operas in the large theatres had about 10 scene changes, and each of these changes required flats and backdrops. The production catalogues have items for frames, carriages, cylinders, ropes, counterweights, lamps, copper wires, and guide rails. Props were hardly used, And were mostly only things like furniture, thrones, settees, chairs and small tables. Backstage needs are documented as well. We read of small barrels for use as urinals, and a heating kettle for warmth in the damp Venetian winters. The manufacture of such spectacular scenery was of course a major task for the impresario, for it required several types of artists and craftsmen and the expenditure of a significant amount of money. The earliest known contract for painted operatic scenery in Venice dates from September of 1641. Cavalli was the impresario, and the contract specified payment for a mid-sized theater build of seven sets and three backdrops, and they had to be completed by December. Zancali was to do this in two and a half months and be paid 300 ducats in total and he also received six tickets for each performance. Machinery and labour, however, generally amounted to a slightly smaller percentage of expenditure when compared with costumes. In the mid-17th century, costuming often amounted to about 15% of total expenditure, as opposed to around 13% for scenery. This is because the vast amount of expert labour for costumes was far greater than that for scenery. In the earliest days of public opera, Singers were actually expected to supply their own costumes, but as the need for visual display increased, so too did the need for lavish costumes. In comparison, the budget for production for set builds, costumes, and lighting for a small modern company like Pinchgut Opera is about 10% of our total expenditure, and not over 25% as it was in the 17th century. Venice was famous for the manufacturing and sale of cloth, and costumes could be made from a variety of silks and other fabrics. Embellishments included embroidery and lace. Some costumes for the prima donnas were especially extravagant, often costing more than many singers would earn in an entire year. On occasion, these would be offered as an enticement to hire a prominent singer, who would then get to keep the costume after the opera had concluded. After the opera season, the costumes could be returned as the property of the designer tailor, or it could be distributed amongst the investors of the company for their own use or for capital. Again, the subject of opera costuming is a topic for another podcast, as our knowledge of these magnificent clothes is just so vast. Was the on-track to Act Three in Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne, as played by the Orchestra of the Antipodes. As I've researched this podcast, I've made a surprising discovery. Most opera in Venice in the 17th century did not make much of a profit. Very much like my own modern-day company, Pinchgut Opera, they were in the non-for-profit mould. Although occasionally some operas and those who ran them made a modest profit, Most of the people who invested capital in the form of labour, like composers and librettists, or money, like investors, they were content with the prestige, the pleasure, and the civic pride that was associated with opera, even if they did make, occasionally, a slight loss. We have the breakdown of the financial situation for the 1657-58 season at the Teatro San Aponal. Let's compare it to what we do at Pinchgat Opera. In 1657, production cost 92% of expenditure, with 8% going to theatre rental. Now that's lower than for us at Pinchgut by comparison. Our venue hire costs 15% of our total expenditure. In 1657, ticket sales and box rental amounted to 68% of total income. For Pinchgut in 2019, our box office Represents 61% of total income. In 1657, 2% of income additionally came from the printing of the libretto, and the remaining 30% came from noblemen who had an interest in keeping the opera industry alive. Often these noblemen had adjacent businesses for which they could rely upon the opera audience to patronise, and often they were art lovers or theatre owners who enjoyed the significant prestige that came from supporting opera. Similarly, in 2019, Pinchgut received 39% of its total income through philanthropy. Unlike other opera companies in Australia and around the world, in 2019, Pinchgut received less than 1% of government funding. Comparative figures in this podcast, however, are taken from our 2018 to 2019 financial reports before the COVID-19 pandemic wreaked havoc with our performances and our finances, it wasn't until 2020 that Pinchgut received our first multi-year government grant from Create New South Wales, as well as receiving some government funds from the COVID lockdowns in 2020 and 2021. Nevertheless, in many respects, we are historically informed in more than just our approach to music. Pinchgut opera is much closer to a 17th-century Venetian company than it is to a modern opera company, at least in terms of income, but Pinchgut is an exception to how modern opera companies are run, and we are far from being the norm. Comparisons of expenditure are different too. In 17th-century Italy, the singers were the ones who were really well paid. Women, in particular, were handsomely rewarded. The top female performers of the time operated from a position of power, as they knew that their services were highly sought after, they would bring audiences in and guarantee ticket sales, so their remuneration was high. Unlike the 18th century and the era of the castrato, the 17th century really was the century for female performers, in terms of popularity and remuneration. Overall, the impresario's expenditure for singers represented by far the largest portion of the overall budget for a season. In the years, all in the 1650s, for which we have reliably complete figures, singers claimed anywhere between 27 and 42% of total costs. Let's compare that with a recent pinch cut production of a similarly sized opera. Singers and creatives are around 17 to 20% of total expenditure. A very small Venetian orchestra for one of Pinchgut's 17th-century productions represents about 5% of the total budget. That's almost exactly the same as it was in the past. In 1658, for example, the orchestra was allocated 6% of the total budget. But Venetian opera had tiny orchestras. A later 18th-century Pinchgut show with a much larger orchestra and chorus costs us over 17% of total budget. Unlike our Venetian ancestors, though, we need to market and promote our product. 11% of our total expenditure goes to marketing, and the Venetians didn't need to advertise, as their product was world-famous already. was Alexandra Omens in the role of Daphne from Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne. She sings, Music, How Sweet You Are. It's a beautiful example of Venetian opera in its earliest and most magnificent form. For the impresario and his company and his investors, the real key to financial success was in satisfying the ticket purchasers, the daily ticket buyers and box holders alike. As we've seen, since box rental income was essentially stable, the relative financial success of a season, that is, whether the deficit was manageable or not, since profit was not really expected, all of this was determined by the nightly ticket sales. So the impresario and his creative team had somehow to craft a performed work that satisfied at one level or another, that is, socially, financially, or artistically, the wealthy theatre owners, the investors, the box holders, But also the middle class ticket buyers in the Scagni. If any of these were dissatisfied, an opera or a season could fail. It was a tricky venture, but apparently it was a deeply rewarding and creative one as well. Opera in Venice had so many different kinds of patrons that perhaps the term patronage isn't really applicable at all. The theatre owner, the box holders, the impresario, the investors and lenders, the dedicatee of the libretto, and the ticket buying audience, they all mattered. In the traditional theory of patronage, the creators aim to please the theatrical tastes of all of these groups and individuals in an effort to maximise income. As Beth and Jonathan Glickson note in their amazing study of the period, the city of Venice itself perhaps best qualifies as patron. A successful operatic season reinforced the status of the city, and not just its patrician rulers as the entertainment capital of Europe. Equalling or bettering the efforts of the great duchies and kingdoms, and bringing in valuable tourist dollars. To close, let's finish with the curtain music to Act 3 of Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne, the pinch cut production of which is shortly to be released on film through Australian Theatre Live. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more Baroque banter.